I'm Dan Kimbrough, and this is Systemic, a podcast about race. I'm a diversity and inclusion advocate and trainer, educator, trained conflict mediator, and media producer with over 20 years of community building and diversity experience. From local communities to university campuses to corporate trainings, I've used my voice to bring people together and better understand each other. I'm also a black man and father. Each episode of Systemic will explore new aspects of race and racism in America. We will look at where we've been, how we got here, how it affects us today, and how we can move forward. The aim is to educate and explain the intertwining of race as a systemic part of American history and culture. We hope that each episode enlightens and drives you to help work towards an anti-racist future. When we think of prison, we often focus on the criminal aspect of the institution. These individuals broke the law and are being punished for doing so. But the punishment, as intended, was to be removed from society for a predetermined amount of time, and then, if part of your agreement, you are released back into society. But while in prison, many prisoners are dehumanized and receive treatment that far exceeds their actual sentence. Much of this is due, primarily, to the physical and psychological designs of prisons themselves. Humane and dignified treatment were never part of the equation. And when you throw in a worldwide pandemic, how does a facility, meant to confine and control people, in small, dehumanizing spaces properly care for those in its charge. On this episode of Systemic, I sit down and speak with Professor Brittany Friedman, a sociologist from the University of Southern California, about the effects of COVID-19 within our prison system. Professor Friedman discusses design flaws of the U.S. prison system and how they were exposed during the COVID-19 pandemic. Professor Friedman shares how prisons were never meant for healthcare and how their punitive culture made containing the virus nearly impossible. She argues the root of mass incarceration lies in slavery and calls for a complete reimagining of how we address harm in society. This episode of Systemic is sponsored by the Black Equity Coalition. The Black Equity Coalition is a group of experts from diverse fields working tirelessly to address institutional racism and structural impediments that continue to plague Black, undervalued, and underserved communities. Initially focused on responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, the coalition is committed to working towards racial and health equity beyond the pandemic's eventual end by engaging in disparities in the five social determinants of health for the underserved, our necessary means of health and survival. Through the collective efforts of physicians, researchers, epidemiologists, public health and healthcare practitioners, social scientists, community funders, and government officials, the Black Equity Coalition is dedicated to ensuring that vulnerable populations have access to health, well-being, and economic stability. For more information, visit blackequitypgh.org. Thanks, everyone, for coming back for another episode of Systemic. I'm your host, Dan Kimbrough. And today we're here with Brittany Friedman of the University of Southern California, um, who is a sociology professor there, correct? Yes. Yep. And um, you also co-founded the Captive Money Lab. Um, and our conversation today is going to look at the notion of uh, our prison system and sort of where it's gone wrong and its design and layout um, and how when COVID-19 hit, um, it really highlighted some of the issues that were already longstanding in prisons. Um, and so I kind of want to start, um, well, because we so, we're not really going to get into the Captive Money Lab, but talk about a little bit what that is. Um, and I think that will help lay the foundation for where we're going with things. Thank you so much, Dan. I appreciate being here. Thank you to your listeners. So I founded the Captive Money Lab this year with uh, doctors April Fernandez and Gabriela Kirk. 
And the lab's mission is to research and advocate on behalf of the political economy of punishment and mass incarceration in the United States. And so what does that look mm -hmm. like? Well, one of our biggest and our main projects is organized around researching pay to stay at the prison level. And what that is, is when states charge people mostly per diem, but also specific costs for incarceration. Um, it can be as high as, for example, in Connecticut, about $250 a day to as little as $80, $60 a day. But what ends up happening is that people can have a very large bill because it's based on their sentence when they get out of mm -hmm. prison. And so our lab is taking this on as our flagship first major project. We've been researching it since 2017 and looking at how states try to recoup the money, the consequences. We've seen pretty devastating consequences because it impacts not just the person who's incarcerated, who, by the way, isn't guaranteed an attorney when they're trying to fight the state, trying to fight the state's attorney general, actually, to uh, not have their assets seized, but it also impacts their dependents. So we see cases of you know dependents writing in and saying, please don't seize my college tuition. That's what's in my parents' account. Or a partner mm -hmm. saying, that's our shared home. Please do not seize our home to pay for Upwards of the biggest bill we've seen is about $800,000. Um, wow. It, yeah, the bills are routinely in the six figures. And so that is what the mission of the Captain Money Lab is, is that we are shining a light through our research uh, nationally on this issue and mapping out its consequences and then translating that for advocates and lawmakers who are interested in taking up this issue. No, thank you for sharing that. Um, and I think it's and it's it's great um, to hear that that's sort of the, the work that you're currently working on, and it lays a good foundation for understanding sort of your your knowledge and and, and where this other research comes in when we're talking about the prison system. Um, and that's a topic that I think we'll come back to maybe in another episode. But for this one, I want to sort of taking that notion of examining prisons and sort of really looking into sort of how they're created, um, and and talk about what happened in 2019. Um, and so we know that COVID hits in 2019 and there's an article um from a newspaper in new jersey that comes out in april of 2020 that talks about the fact that this was the third uh corrections officer who had passed away and that you know um, plus the amount of new jersey prisoners that passed away from COVID 19 as well um and really looking at the idea that prison by design has a lot of people in a small confined space that are meant to be able to control very easily um and that that design doesn't really allow for the notion of social distancing or really working in any system as far as healthcare treatment goes. Um, that same article made a uh, comment that prisons were never meant to be a healthcare treatment facility. Uh, and by definition, both by design and function, you have a considerable number of people in close quarters, which in April 2020, the word on the street was get as far away from people as you can and create as much distance as humanly possible. So we have a, a, a by design, a function that is people in close quarters who are meant to be moved together and sort of always around one another. And we saw that once the disease entered a space, it would move rather quickly. And so you, in your research, have, have looked at sort of the design of prisons in this back end, and you say that the social organization of prison, um, it's a prison life itself, uh, is what the issue comes down to. That a lot of the deaths that occurred in prison were more by the design of prisons and the, and the institutional design of prisons as opposed to this being an accident. 
So let's sort of unpack that and go back to 2020. What happened? How is it that prisons were designed, the design of prisons led to more deaths than less deaths in the long run? So as a sociologist, I'm very much concerned with things such as social design, social organization. And what do I mean by that? I mean, I'm interested Mm -hmm. in the policies that we have in our society. I'm interested in institutions such as um, education, criminal justice, housing, right? Those are our social institutions. How are they organized? What policies, what cultural norms run them? And, And who is governed by them? And so when we're talking Mm -hmm. about prisons, prisons fundamentally are grounded in the reality that incarcerated people are are dehumanized. They are not considered human beings once they enter a facility. Many would argue upon sentencing. Um, People would argue Mm -hmm. even before that, when you're first entering uh, jail, is actually when you begin to experience this stripping down. And where does that come from? Well, many legal scholars, historians, take it all the way back to the inception of this country because confinement Mm -hmm. and incarceration was pivotal in the colonial regimes when it came to erasing indigenous lands. You had to capture people. Mm -hmm. In addition to genocides, but people were captured, they were held. When it comes to uh, chattel slavery being the driving economic machine leading to progress in this country, um, enslaved people are incarcerated in that way. Um, And then also when we, we think about legal policies that would have allowed for uh, freedom, we, we point to the 13th amendment, but the 13th amendment, as we know, as, as um, people were interested in these topics, it allowed for the abolition of enslaved peoples, but Uh, The exception, if you will, the footnote is uh, except for people who are convicted of a crime. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. because of that, um, sweeping informal practices, meaning not necessarily legally governed uh, and also legal practices occurred in the wake that uh, allowed for the further criminalization of people of color rooted in anti-black sentiment. And so we really see the spike in incarceration for Black people specifically actually post-Civil War. It's it's not Mm -hmm. this timeline that we think of as mass incarceration happening in the 70s and 80s. And it's actually, that is a, a, it's a a huge exponential spike, but it's a part of a lot, a larger historical pattern is my point. Mm -hmm. And so within that broad history, history and historical context, also, we see that prisons were not designed to uh, as places of healing, places of transformation, right? Or even the word rehabilitation is thrown around. But if you look at the history of the way that prisons are built in the United States, uh, solitary confinement was actually seen as a, as a tool for rehabilitation for centuries. Really? Yes, for centuries. And so even when you think, when people say solitary confinement, was actually one of the main ways that reformers in the late 1800s, early 1900s thought we could rehabilitate people. And we know that it's it's torture. And so my point is, is that this is the setup within which contemporary prisons are operating. And um, 
The way that we also think about it in sociology is we consider prisons to be total institutions because of this. And what that means is that they are designed as a form of punishment to totally encompass someone's life. So when the person mm -hmm. enters the institution, right, they the first step in dehumanizing them and totalizing them is taking away their name, taking away their clothing, replacing it with a number, replacing it with a standard issue outfit so that they have no sense of individuality, stripping away their daily functions to the bare minimum and having control over every moment of their life. And so that is that is the culture of punishment and prisons in the United States. And it's within that dehumanizing context that the COVID-19 pandemic hit. And, and that is what I mean when I say that it is death by design because people were already at a higher rate of physically dying. Um, mm -hmm. Or another term that we have in sociology is we call it social death, which, which is when people are fundamentally cut off from their social world. But as I noted, that is the purpose of prisons because they're totalizing. And so mm -hmm. people are already exposed to death in many ways at a higher rate before you have a health crisis like COVID-19. And so hearing that and that description of, 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 of prison, you know, from the moment that you're stripped down and you're, you're, you essentially become a number and not a name anymore and all these things, it legitimately sounds like what happens the moment you're bought at a chattel slavery and moved to a new plantation. And so that the idea that our current prison system is built on the idea of containing and controlling the movement of individuals, well, that's also what the idea of slavery was and slave watchers and all those things. And so there's this direct correlation um, and so when, how is it though that in a system that's as old as prison systems are and the idea, you know, solitary confinement, you says goes back to the 1800s. How is it that this system has not changed though? Like I can hear the argument now. Well, but it's not only black and brown people who are in prisons anymore, or we hear of the sort of white collar prisons where there's a lot more movement in these things. It can't be all prisons or how have they not changed? Is it? And, you know, asking the silly question, is it really that bad, given that these are people who have committed crimes and are supposed to be sort of separated? Is it that bad? Yes. It is that bad. It, it, mm -hmm. it, it, the way that confinement operates in the United States, as I, as I explained and as you noted, from its inception was, mm -hmm. designed, was designed as a form of torture. Mm -hmm. um, and that aspect of it has fundamentally not changed. Um, and I, because the culture of punishment is based on that, and it's also based on ideals such as vengeance, retribution, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because of those cultural norms being so deeply ingrained, prisons are, even with the, the best reforms, uh, in, in my opinion, from reforms that I have read the research about, for example, trying to reform solitary confinement uh, using like mm -hmm. less isolating uh, um, dormitories, for example, people still report very similar psychological consequences from being held in that small space. 
So my point is, is mm -hmm. that if these are the roots of the tree, how do we actually fix it by just, you know, sprinkling on a different kind of fertilizer, right? It's not going to work. Right. We actually have to upend the roots and completely reimagine how we d deal with harm in our society, how we how we even conceptualize um, humanity in our society. Because for me, it fundamentally mm -hmm. begins with a desire to um, to label entire populations as undeserving, to use the criminal mm -hmm. legal system as a civilizing force, right? That's what colonialism was. It, the, the criminal legal system was the front arm of the settler colonial state, which is the United States. Mm -hmm. So it's we have to completely reimagine how we even relate as human beings because it is ingrained into what it means to be American, I would say, based on the research. Thank you for sharing that. And so if the system is this broken and then COVID-19 comes along and we see that we have a, a system that's meant to confine, it's meant to control, it's not meant for real re rehabilitation at the end of the day. Um, it's more about the idea that this is where you live now and you're going to stay here and we've cut you off in this totalitarian effort. Did we ever stand a chance when COVID hit? And like, yes, there have been other um, illnesses, you know, the flu makes its runs and things of this nature, but nothing before COVID-19, you know, really sort of hit prisons this hard. Did we stand a chance at any point in time when COVID-19 hit based on how prisons are designed in that we've almost invested in this idea of mass incarceration as punishment as, a po as opposed to rehabil rehabilitation? Prisons did not stand a chance. I, I'd actually also like to make an even bigger analogy in that total institutions didn't stand a chance. Going back to that point that we, right, explain. Uh, we have institutions in our society that are designed to one, remove people's name, to group mm -hmm. them together as being similarly situated, usually through uh, similar housing conditions, uh, through similar dress, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then completely controlling their day-to-day -day routines. So within right. total institutions, you don't just have prisons. You have other types of total institutions, such as uh, what we would consider a public hospital or the old school term asylums. Um, gotcha, gotcha. Nursing homes are total institutions. So the first mm -hmm. thing I was thinking when I was, I was actually living in New Jersey at the beginning of 2020 when everything was unfolding. The first thing I thought as a sociologist, I was like, oh my gosh, the total institutions, because of also because of the separation aspect in keeping people behind these closed enclosed spaces in tight groups um and the way that people within total institutions uh are actually have higher rates of exposure of abuse and it's because of these dehumanizing social norms i was mm -hmm. like total institutions are where we're going to see the highest spikes and it's true we saw the highest spikes in nursing homes jails mm -hmm. gotcha and so I, they didn't, they didn't stand a chance because of the way that they're socially structured, and the also the fact that within those institutions, one sociologists have and social psychologists also have long argued that life is not valued the same as people who are on the outside of them. Okay. 
And and I and because the these social norms and rituals are designed to to make it so that we no longer see people, we just see, for example, inmate, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, another a term that that you know for some of the most egregious nursing homes that have been brought up on lawsuit, right? The term resident, like oh, the resident had an issue with you know exasperated and it's like the resident is like someone's grandmother but we use these terms are used in total institutions that that have long been proven to have a very dehumanizing effect and so i remember early in 2020 lots of people predicted that this was going to happen where total institutions were going to be hit the hardest seeing um the story of Tiffany Mofield. Did you see that in the news by chance in New Jersey? Uh, she was incarcerated in the uh, women's prison in New Jersey, the notorious one um, mm-hmm. that advocates worked to to shut down in the last year. But in 2020, uh, she was incarcerated there and she actually um, died alone in solitary confinement, locked in a shower gasping for air while um fellow incarcerated women saw her yeah everyone was yelling trying to get help when officers finally came it's like there's almost like a viewing party it's like oh wow they're just viewing while she's screaming and no one's no one's has any urgency and so the point Mm -hmm. of sharing her story and how she died is that Within these spaces, people are no longer valued. Like they are not even seen as a human being anymore. You can imagine like, how could they, the question that comes to mind, is like, how could you just stand, if you're an officer, how could you watch that? But the mm-hmm. answer is like, there's really interesting new like neurological research to sh- about racism, showing that mm-hmm. like sometimes like, um, trying to explain like how someone could see a person of color in pain and not react. I think that right. it's similar research on uh, people who are, who are incarcerated, for example, we might, sh- it might show a similar finding where like where we have empathy and stuff in the brain, maybe it wouldn't light up. I think that would right. explain a lot of these types of responses that are very much tied to these social rituals that that are so normal in our society. It's mm-hmm. so normal, for example, to have like the idea of an inmate, but people don't realize right. like that the real human consequences of these social norms and how they play out uh, for people's lives. And it's interesting the way the way you describe it as you know with the prison system with 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 nursing homes. And the idea that if you, you know, in a nursing home to, to, to refer to someone as a resident, as a, as a dehumanizing uh, way of sort of stripping that individuality. I worked in housing and college was for a long time and we called them residents and they are sort of sectioned off and you are sort of known by the building you live in, but realistically you're known as the, the institution you attend. And so mm-hmm. you're a Spartan or you're a Wolverine, you're a blue devil. Um, and so it feels really interesting that. It sounds like our, you know, and you could take that back to our elementary schools and how, you know, we look at schools overall. We talk about, you know, the school to prison pipeline, but realistically, it sounds like we have a whole lot of total institutions, 
But unless, you know, you're age 30 to 65 where you have some freedom, depending on your socioeconomic status and everything else, you're stuck in total institutions. Like up until around 21, 22, when we want you in college, looking at a college or a university as a total institution, up until you get to the point where we can't deal with you in the home, so we may put you in a nursing home, how much of our lives are spent in these total institutions, which are, as you're saying, detrimental to our health? I think that's a phenomenal point. Like when you said that, I was just like, oh my gosh, it is, <laughs> it's a huge a percentage of our lives are spent within these very totalizing institutions that are so normal that it's almost like without them, people, I, I feel like people would say, well, well, what would we do instead? Right? It's like <laughs> the same thing about prisons. It's like, what would we do instead? But it, it goes back to the point of reimagining. Um, I uh, One mm-hmm. of my uh, favorite books um, is called Discipline and Punish by uh, Michel Foucault. And I like that book because he is he's in line with this like total institution argument, even though he doesn't use that term, but it's definitely in the same mm-hmm. like way of arguments. And he's talking about basically how our society is designed to discipline and punish people through different social institutions. And one that he really zeroes in on is schools. And he talks about like almost he doesn't use this word, but you could say like the social engineering that happens where Mm -hmm. we've seen there's so much research that shows like how people are more likely to be punished in a school if they just can't sit still. But, you know, you're if a, a little kid, most little kids can't sit still. My little kids are always running around. But it's right. like all of these, the point is, is that there's all of these different practices in our society that are built around punishment. They're not built mm-hmm. around care. So for example, right, a little kid's running around in the classroom, so they get labeled as whatever by the school. They're more likely to then be segregated they're more likely mm-hmm. to be uh, looked down upon. They're more likely to probably be suspended or have some sort of, you know, official punishment on their record. How is that not akin to prison, right? As, we, as, as you were talking, I was literally just thinking, so you have an inmate who is now a troubled inmate who has been put into solitary confinement, who has been moved to whatever cell block there, like all the things that we would do to that preschool child who just is fidgety because they're in preschool we're treating them like a prisoner in how we're organizing their punishments and i've never even though i brought that up i've never thought about going back the other way that how we discipline children at very young ages is almost the exact same as what we would do to them if they were in a prison system exactly i mean i there's such really great recent research for example on like time out like all of us, like, of you know, mm-hmm. like certain generations, right? I'm a millennial. <laughs> so I'm like, as a millennial, I was right, like, right, same, same, yeah. Living in timeout. <laughs> like, really trying <laughs> to live my best life as a, like a little kid at home and at school, living in timeout. But there's so much research that shows that like timeout is not effective in the way that we think about it. Like all these, and it's rooted in a punitive framework. Mm-hmm. It's versus instead asking the child, Right. Like, you know, are you bored? It's usually, <laughs> I remember as a little kid, I was, I was bored when the teacher was and talking. And that was what it was. Already know the, we, we know the answer back here. Or like, you said it yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> you said it yesterday. 
But instead, the answer is, oh, time out or principal. Right. Versus saying, maybe this kid needs more work. Maybe they need something else. And that's interesting when you you flip that to a prison system and the idea of, yeah, they're bored by design, but how do you feel that day? How do you find ways of, of teaching productivity or, you know, actual rehabilitation? Because if not, you're just spinning a wheel around where they're just going to continue to get in trouble. And when you go back to the preschool, like if that's how we're treating our kids, those are the kids that continue to get in trouble because we've never said, are you just bored? What do you need? How can we, you know, what can we do together to stop this problem? We assume you fall into a category of trouble. And then that goes on your record as a small child. And through school, you are a troubled kid when realistically you were bored. And they said it the other day. So why am I listening to you? You're wasting my time. Exactly. I, I I feel like it, it it has to do with this like punitive framing and such like mm-hmm. negative labeling that is really re- like I'm talking about the um, children right now, right? The labeling, but labeling is transferable in other arenas. It, it all starts with a label that right. has a negative connotation and it, it sticks. That's what we would say in sociology. It's like a labels are sticky. Because they they, mm-hmm. attached, they they have a reputational attachment. And we all know gotcha. that. Like now, like, you know, people will say, oh, your word is bond or your reputation. Yeah, but mm-hmm. think about how labels attach and they create a reputation. It's why we see such issue with the school to prison pipeline, right? Thinking about how these mm-hmm. labels follow people all the way from like TK through. Um, yeah. How do labels follow people once they get out? Right. That there's millions Mm -hmm. of people in the United States living with different types of criminal records. And uh, there's a really great book by a colleague actually at Rutgers who um, uh, her name is Sarah Loggison. And the book is is all about, for example, the mugshot industry and how people have their records expunged. They killed and resold so many times. And the question I ask then is, what is the purpose of that beyond humiliation, shame, vengeance, mm-hmm. making it so that people can never recover. People can never get their lives into a place where they want it to be. Like, is that really yeah. the ethos that we want for our society? That's interesting. I didn't, and I did not know about the fact <laughs> that like mugshots could be sold is photos that go around because yeah, like if I'm, if I'm out and I've, I've, I've done my state assigned time for the crime that I'm accused of and da, 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 then I should be done. And I shouldn't have to worry about a mugshot popping up and, and, and causing harm to my life. That's very interesting, but you're right. That's that it's that labeling that follows everyone through. Um, and so if we go back to the prisons then, and we think about the idea that we've labeled these individuals, already because they're in this total system, which is prison. And then if in prison, you've done something wrong, you've got even more labels attached. How, how then does what happened with COVID then? So let's, 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 let's talk about it. So what then did we find was the issue that if we are all about confining and controlling individuals in these spaces, and we've done all of these other horrible things to them, regardless of their crime that have made them sort of less than or subhuman. So then what happens? What, what, what did we see in 2020 and 2021 in our prison system? So what we saw um, in 2020, I'll, I'll take us back to March, March, 2020. I was in New Jersey. I had started doing research specifically on New Jersey 
started linking up with activists um, and attorneys who actually had clients in New Jersey prisons to try to get a sense of like what's happening in real time. And there was complete mm -hmm. panic, right? For, for good reason, there's panic across the whole country. But in the tri-state area, we were looking behind bars because the correctional institutions, as we've noted, the way that they're socially structured, they're not designed as health agencies. Right. So the response is, right, incarcerated people are, are seeing on the news, right, that, oh, one way to protect yourself from the coronavirus is to wear a mask. But at the time in mm -hmm. New Jersey, people were not, incarcerated people were not being given masks in March, April, like during that time, they were not being given masks. So it's significantly increasing the spread because it's coming in from the outside because oh, wow. they closed down visitations. So you know it's coming in mm -hmm. from staff. The reports that right. I received at that time was that many staff were mask resistant. Some were wearing masks and actually were doing their own lobbying through their union to get access to the proper equipment. So that is true. The union was fighting DOC for their own equipment. But also there were, as we learned from incarcerated people, some staff that were mask resistant. <clears throat> mm -hmm. um, also, people were getting punished then for trying to wear a mask and being told. Oh, wow. Yes, and being and it's being this goes back to the point about it being counter to the the original values of the institution. They're being told, oh, a mask is a security threat. And it's like, well, perhaps, but it's there's actually a pandemic happening. So we have to adjust our culture to where mm -hmm. we are now responding to a health crisis and the and the prison system struggled to do that. I argue is because of the way they're not designed for them. They're designed right. for people to suffer. So the mm -hmm. response is, oh, you can't wear that mask that you made yourself and yourself. And then people were getting in trouble for it. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, in the early stages, they were getting in trouble before they started to pass out. Like New Jersey, uh, at least from the insider knowledge that I was receiving, people weren't systematically getting proper PPE until like later in the spring, like incarcerated people, like on a mass level really get right. it. So people were, it was kind of trickling in and a lot of people were mm -hmm. making new and making their own. Another issue. That's... Oh, I, oh, please no, go mm -hmm. ahead. Oh, no, I was gonna say, I just, it's really interesting. The, the notion that you have individuals who are in a confined space and on the outside, we've at least acknowledged masking is helping. And if you can go get a mask. And so that we're telling people that this is what's going to work, but we're not providing it to the people who don't literally have access to it. And because the system says that it, I don't understand how a mask is a security threat. Like, I guess because you can't see someone's face, the bottom part of their face are these things. But still, if we're telling people on the outside, this is what's healthy and what will keep you safe. We're literally denying it for people who are on the inside of an incarcerated system, all because this a the system is set up in a way that designs so that it doesn't allow for that individuality, but B, because we're scrambling and we we don't know how to pivot really well is what it sounds like what you're saying. Exactly. There's a huge mismatch. Um, it's actually something mm -hmm. that I'm currently working on with a graduate student is trying to write this very thing up, like how there was a very distinct mismatch in cultural values for the mm -hmm. institution that significantly contributed to harm 
for incarcerated people and then also for staff because staff were catching COVID, getting sick and passing away too. You know, it was everyone who's within this total institution, um, but specifically incarcerated people in terms of the amount of harm and suffering, it just skyrocketed. Um, Another note that we, and I say we, myself and my graduate students uh, at the time, another thing that came through during these conversations with people who had direct links on the inside was how the use of solitary confinement just like skyrocketed. Um, And I mean, Human Rights Watch has an amazing uh, report about this and how solitary confinement spiked during the start of the pandemic. But in New Jersey, we had direct reports from people um, on how the solitary was used as a quarantine. And going back to my earlier point about Tiffany Mofield in the women's prison who passed away, she was under quarantine, but she was in solitary, under quarantine, locked in, gasping and asking for help. And so that was something that we continually, that information was coming in that people were literally terrified because the term that was used was, I don't want to be disappeared. Because when someone has symptoms, they get disappeared. We don't see them again. And we found out, you know, did some digging. Where are they going? They're going into ADSEG. They're going into isolation cells that are being used to quarantine them. But they're not getting medical care. It's like, again, using punitive policies to try to deal with the health crisis. But it's an institution that is not designed to deal with this, designed to harm people. Right. Wow. And so not only are you now sick, with a disease that we don't know how to slow down, our solution to keep you separated is to put you in the one place no one in prison wants to go and not offer you medical assistance. That's that's crazy that that was the solution. Um, and while this is terrible on the prisoner's behalf, aren't first respond like aren't the 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 correction officer aren't they considered first responders like are they if that's how it's getting in are we at least not even giving them PPE wasn't there a humongous push to make sure that first responders and those in law enforcement had PPE did that not happen in prisons so it definitely did happen in prisons there was during this time excuse me <clears throat> I'm having some allergies so please bear with me that's why I have my tea. <laughs> no. So, I understand. I understand. Um, the Southern California, we're having like a dust wind this Halloween. Oh, reason I'm like, oh my gosh. Um, so there were pushes um, at the union level. So the Correctional right. Officers Union, they were starting to push um, the the so the evidence, if you will, that I have for this is, is in my connections were that they were really pushing for this in the spring of 2020, but later in the spring, starting to push and say, like, we need masks for incarcerated people too. We need mm-hmm. we need these things. We need policy shifts because we're getting sick too because they're, they don't have masks. Right. We don't even have enough PPE. Um, and so there were these push pushes that happened later, but it's like in a pandemic, it's too late. That's one of right. the biggest findings. It's that the institution was not ready because of the way it's structured. How could it have been ready? I know mm-hmm. that in New Jersey, there was also a lawsuit. Um, the nurses union, the correctional nurses union actually sued for this very issue. 
for not oh, having wow. proper equipment and for being exposed in the workplace. And so I, I think if we really care about human lives, like on a, on a many fronts, on a moral issue, social issue, politically, it's like everyone's lives are at stake when we create these institutions that are designed to harm. They're not designed to mm-hmm. heal, transform, or, um, and, and I like to use those words, and even though we could say rehabilitate, I think heal, transform. The, mm-hmm. the institutions that um, would be life-giving, in the words of many um, uh, scholars and abolitionists and activists, using that term life-giving, what does that look like? Can we think about that for all of our total institutions, our schools, our our prisons, even our hospitals, right, mm-hmm. are so commodified now that can we could make an argument that over time they've even become more punitive in terms of excuse me, how people are treated on the basis of gender, race, and sexual uh, orientation, even in a hospital that's supposed to be a place of healing. Are they overwhelmingly culturally or culturally, are they really a place of um, seeing if you have insurance, seeing if you you actually fit the right ideal patient? Right. I think it's a fundamental reorganization of how we even do society. Well, and that's interesting. And it just and it makes me wonder because in a lot of times we find that, you know, once something terrible happens, the big question, you know, down the line is, well, how how were we not prepared for that? Like thinking of the prison system and the idea that, yes, it's not a medical facility, but when you have that many people that tightly crammed together, it would seem that being not so much, not technically being a healthcare facility, but healthcare overall should be an issue because it's going to be just by the density of the population that you have there. But also, again, you have people who are allowed out your, your parole officers, your correction officers, your, the warden, all these people who are coming in and out and people who cannot leave. So if anything comes in, A, it's coming from the outside. But B, these folks can't get away from it. So it would seem that like in the past, at some point, the flu should have been a warning. Hey, we're not equipped to deal with if this runs rampant. How and, it, and maybe we've lucked out, knock on wood, that that never happened. But is it how is it that this these the prison system at no point never made a switch and not a switch, but just had the notion of if someone gets sick in here and something spreads we can't even protect ourselves as people who work at the prison. Like, even if they don't care about the inmates, they can't protect themselves. How has that never been a a thought at some point? I think that's a phenomenal question. I mean, I I think it's a question that should ring out more and more. And the reason I say that is because if we look at the numbers, people are still catching COVID-19 in prisons and we are in 2023. Mm -hmm. People, the COVID cases have started to resurge in many states that once um, sort of had them under control because of release policies that they pass, right? New Jersey being famous because eventually New Jersey did become one of the first states to have a comprehensive uh, decarceration plan in place because it realized like its numbers were so high compared to the rest of the country. It was almost, it was forced to. But mm-hmm. that's the, the question that I have is like, should we 
Should we be forced because so many people are getting sick and dying? That's, mm-hmm. That is the barometer by which we move. Um, I, I think also um, other issues that are now concurrently happening with the pandemic that I think is important when thinking about prisons is that we also have a lot of toxic prisons. Mm-hmm. I have an amazing graduate student actually whose whose dissertation is on this. Like, how can we think about issues such as mass incarceration in the pandemic, but also with the fact that we have global warming and other ecological mm-hmm. issues that are directly impacting people incarcerated? Right. We saw in the news, I think this last summer, there was like um, severe issues across the country, especially in states that get super hot like Texas with incarcerated people being in extremely unsafe conditions. Right. No air as it gets hotter. And I think that these are issues we're going to continually face. And we have to think about how can we reduce our our prison populations? How can we significantly reduce them and our jail populations? Well, and that was going to be my next question is that is it a, is it a, we need to, revamp our prison systems is it we need to work on decarceration as you said and and look at mass release programs for certain types of incarcerated individuals is it we need to call in the architects and say let's re-examine what a prison physically looks like or is it all of these things or is it none of those things how do we thinking about prisons and understanding that you know if we go back to the top of this talking systemically they're created to confine control they're they're punitive based on old slave and chattel models and now but they've exploded in this country numerous waves and reasons of it how do we how do we fix this system in that we're dehumanizing anyone who goes in and you know to your point the moment you walk in the courtroom you start that downward slide of being less than human and and, and less than everyone else what is it that we need to do if for no other reason is than to protect against a pandemic, but how do we become, how do we make prisons life affirming with the understanding that society is saying, but these are the bad people. Why are we life affirming the bad people? You know, why do they get PPE when I have to go out and buy it? Like that's going to be that outside argument. How do we reform this system? And is it any of those things or is it, is it something that we haven't thought of? Like, how do we move forward? So I think that we also, we, we have to, it starts culturally, right? Mm -hmm. I think, um, You know, I think, you know how you see like a lot of people of a certain generation will say like, there's so many of these bad people in prison, right? Blah, 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 blah. The first thing I want to say is, well, did you come of age in the 80s? And then they'll be like, yes. And then I'll be like, well, did you ever use cocaine? Because a huge percentage of your age group used cocaine. And if you actually know the history, you would know that um, it was disproportionately, excuse me, crack cocaine was disproportionately targeted for incarceration. And so mm-hmm. would you say that you were a bad person because when you were of a certain age, you were out partying and you just so happened to not be using a drug that is a, a historically very white privileged uh, class to drug where you were able to uh, avoid uh, spending life in prison, for example. Or so That's I a damn think, good question. you know, I think it's good. Sometimes you got to, you know, got to just like flip things back. Sometimes mm-hmm. people, they need a mirror when they start talking and they start forgetting about their own life. That's the first thing I think. And I think that's cultural. I think often gotcha. people forget about their own life. They forget about their friends and family when they're passing down uh, judgment and like vengeance on other people. 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's lots of different arguments that that for reducing our prison population that appeal to people across the political spectrum also. So what mm-hmm. do I mean by that? There's a moral argument, which we've talked about uh, so far, but for people who are not there, there's also the economic argument. <laughs> You're okay, I promise. <laughs> there's also, <laughs> I ran out of my team, I was like, no, there's also the um, eco- economic argument. Um, I'm going to kind of, uh, I'm going to restart that. So mm-hmm. for people who are not really keen on the moral argument that we have really extensively uh, pretty much covered, I would say, there's the economic argument and then there's also mm-hmm. a religious argument. Um, so I'll speak first to the ex- prisons are incredibly expensive. The cost mm-hmm. per incarcerated person, even for at the state level, is in the several, several thousands. On that point alone, for people who only care about, you know, reducing government, um, attending to the bottom line, taxpayers' dollars, right, then you should care about mass incarceration because that is where your money is going. And if you care about you wanting your money to go to schools instead, then you should also be on the front line lobbying your lawmakers for reducing the incarcerating for the end of things such as cash bail, which disproportionately target people who just simply don't have money to get released right from jail. So I I think there's a lot of economic arguments that are uh, that I think have appealed across the political spectrum. And it's why we are starting to see more and more bipartisan support for reducing Mm -hmm. The prison population, and it's not only based on a moral argument, even though I would hold the moral argument front and center, there's these other arguments that people are saying, all right, there's something there for me. You know, there's some there's something that can get me here to this. We could meet in the middle. Um, right. There's also a religious argument. There's a huge percentage of our country that would call themselves to be religious of whatever denomination um, or background. And I would say that many organized religions have a, as a tenet that we believe in redemption. Don't we believe mm-hmm. that people deserve chances? Um, we believe in care. We believe in, you know, and providing tools for people to change their life. Well, if that's the case, then how could you be standing up there acting like you're Richard Nixon or Reagan? Gotcha. Is that actually, you know, to put it, Frankly, is that godly for whatever religion you are? Is that actually walking in a way that is 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 uh, with your faith? So I think that there's lots of arguments that people can find something that they can they can get behind as to why we need this to be at the front of our issues in this country. No, I like that, and I think that that's given that the you know the moral, the economic, the 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 religious argument that there's a way. That culturally, you know, there's numerous avenues that people can take to sort of get on board with the idea of, if nothing else, getting on board with the idea of a change needs to happen here. We need to reimagine the system. Um, and so given that, then what do you think, in your opinion, what, what do, a, what does a new age prison look like that, that can life affirm, that can uplift, but also, be something that will that will be able to deal with these issues and not get to a point where 
you get people who are going, now we're being too posh with things. And I don't think, I personally don't think you, you're in prison. You're, you're confined. There is no too posh um, because of where you are. But that, that argument is always going to exist. But what does that new age prison system look like um, in which we are still removing individuals who are deemed too bad for being in public and need to go through these things and learn and be better and learn to become better, um, but that we're not doing it at a rate where there are so many people that are there now. You know, what does this new system look like in your in your opinion? I would say that first we have to start with the legal structure so that there are we completely re reform um, in ways that that are it's already happening in some states and jurisdictions, but completely mm-hmm. reform our criminal legal system. And so that we have uh, an exponential increase in alternatives to incarceration that are built into the system. Also, we would fundamentally, um, these are things that before we even get to the prison system that if they don't happen, the system will just keep growing no matter what system we built to build to replace it. Um, I would also say that if if you change and reform the criminal legal code in this way to provide more alternatives to incarceration, it would also shift similarly to how we've seen a, a massive sweep of legalization, right, of marijuana. That fundamentally changes who even gets arrested. So there's right. all these different criminal legal reforms that we can do on the front end that are going to significantly reduce the amount of people that end up in jail and then mm-hmm. get convicted in prison. I think then when thinking about prison, when pe- uh, when people get to that place in in their contact with the criminal legal system i mean i think that the because prison has so much baggage socially and culturally and even economically because there are states and institutions and 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 businesses that profit from prisons existing in the way that they do we would have to do away with that and do something Mm -hmm. else and that's why I'm on I'm on board with scholars and activists who are dedicating their energy into researching what is that alternative that is not prison? What is that alternative? Gotcha. Once we've reformed who we're arresting, we've reformed um, pathways to people who are being who are, are are being shifted to being removed. Then when we get to that final step, what does that actually look like? Is it life giving? Right. Is it something that is about care? Is it something that is about healing communities of harm, right? And that's what I—that's where we need to be focusing our our brain power on fixing. No, I like that. I like the the idea that it's even before we get to the point where we're fixing prisons, we need to reexamine how we're legally going about doing things, how we're who we're arresting, and I like the way you put that. Um, because right, like going back to the idea of the eighties in in powder laws versus rocking, you know, we've we literally have systemically put in a system where depending on your skin color and your zip code, you know likely will end up in a prison system. So before we change the system, let's change how we're going about policing and looking at individuals. Um, and then it may come down to just, it needs to be something new, something that we haven't thought of that we haven't imagined. Um, seeing that all that we've done has been built on the back of slavery and, and all of these, you know, immoral things that we've done. So the notion is whatever the new thing is, we haven't thought of it yet because we have to break our our cycle of what we've been doing so far. Yes, exactly. And there are people, there are scholars 
there are practitioners. And when I say practitioners, I mean people working in working in legal professions. And there are activists that are, that are doing this right now in real mm-hmm. time. That is where they're focusing their energy. And I think that we we all have a part to play, right? We find what do you do well, and then you do that thing really well, and that's your part. That's how you're contributing to dismantling these systems of harm. No, I like that. Um, what haven't we discussed? What have I missed? What's the question that my audience needs to hear that I didn't ask um, in looking at prisons and and how we, and A, sort of how they, they, they've come to be, but also how we change this model so that we don't end up with pandemics sort of crippling this entire system and things of that nature. What, do, what, what have I missed? I would say that you haven't missed anything. Um, instead, I would say that I have a question for your audience to kind of ponder as mm-hmm. they leave this conversation. Um, I think it's important for people to think about, you know, where do I fit? Where do I fit in this system? to evaluate oneself, one's own life history, world that I want, and where can I place myself in a certain position for different modes of change? Whether that be, are you someone who's a dreamer that you're good at imagining new, imagining systems that we've never seen before, or learning from past systems and kind of, you know, reshaping them? Or are you someone Mm -hmm. that is very good with looking at patterns and identifying problems? So then you should be on the research end. Are you someone who's very good at speaking and connecting to people from various backgrounds, political viewpoints? Maybe you should be on the front lines talking, right? Mm -hmm. Having conversations with people, enlightening people, getting people's perspective. And so I would say like really thinking about where do I fit and what's important to me and how can I tangibly do something to align myself with having a place as we change and build a better world. Thank you for that. Um, and hopefully we'll get some responses, uh, but I think that's that's a really good idea of the figuring out sort of where do you fit in this entire system and 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 that self-evaluation. Um, I think as a, I would argue as a, as a culture, I think we've, we've been doing more of the self-evaluation. I think that's why there's been a lot more push of, of people who are slowly realizing, oh, it's not just about me or, I am connected to this history of whatever in a in a weird way that I do need to care. So, um, so no, I appreciate that um, and extend the challenge. Yeah, where do you fit in this in this entire process? Um, and what can you be doing? So, um, Brittany, thank you so much for your time today. If folks want to uh, reach out, um, either to to figure out more or to ask questions or or just to get more information, how would they go about getting a hold of you? So you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Curly Professor, which is one word. Um, you can also find me on my website, which is Um, And you can also mm-hmm. find me if you search pages for USC. I'm an assistant professor in sociology there, and I would love to hear from you. All right. Well, thank you very much again, Brittany, for your time today. This has been Systemic, and I'm your host, Dan Kimbrough. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for listening to Systemic. This podcast aims to create a community of change and can only do so through your support. Please make sure you subscribe and follow wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you would, head over to Apple Podcasts to rate and leave a review. 
The more you share and review Systemic, the more our community of change can grow. Another way you can help is supporting Systemic on Patreon. Your contributions will allow the podcast to expand and give you the opportunity to support Systemic offline. Thank you again for listening and your support. Systemic is a production and passion of Park Multimedia. And remember, to solve any problem, you must first acknowledge it exists.